Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 78 of the Play DNA podcast. My name is Sarah. I'm Cassandra. I'm Damon. Welcome. Today, we're going to talk about how the deck of cards evolved to its 52 standard deck. But before we do that, let's talk about the games we've played this week. Um, well, we only played one game, and that was a game that you actually mentioned during our Oceans episode, Sarah, um, and that was Turn the Tide. And Turn the Tide is a trick-taking game, but it's a very unique trick-taking game. Um, the cards are not normal cards. They're uh, numbered between 1 and 60. Is that correct? I think it's 1 in 100. 1 in 100? Oh, I was way off. <laughs> um, it's okay. 1 in 100. And um, you are, are playing a trick-taking game, um, so you want to play high cards sometimes, um, but a lot of times you want to actually lose the trick. You don't want to take cards. So you either want to play low cards and not take the trick, which means that you don't have to take any cards and the cards are kind of penalties to you. Or if you have a penalty from a previous round, then you might want to take the trick card because it is a lower penalty than what you currently have, in which case you want to win the trick and you want to play the highest number. Um, the really bad area that you don't want to be in is the middle. If you play one of the middle cards, if you're not the highest and you're not the lowest, that's when you really get screwed. Um, so it's really interesting. It's very, like, Sarah kicked our butts. So clearly there's a strategy. I never found it. It's like very difficult to determine what other people are going to do. Um, but the other cool little twist about this game is that you play, like we were a three-player game, so we, we played three rounds. And for each round, the hands were the same, but we rotated who had the hand. So each of us would play each hand once, meaning we all had the same odds of doing well it's just who actually played their hand the best which is yeah. interesting um damon did you have any thoughts about turn the tide i think you covered it really really well I, also i felt like it had uh, it was very similar to um for sale which is hilarious because sarah hates for sale and um <laughs> it I, it's like a more complicated version of for sale i thought hmm. yeah well, we also played a lot of other games because we had a little game night. So we played, I didn't realize Glenn had two copies of Bandu, so he brought one over so I could play again because I liked it uh, so nice. much the first time we played. So we played Bandu, which Great was fun. Game. And then we played a game that you guys gave us. You gave me this game called Worderific. Um, oh, you played it. We played it. Was it as bad as it said it was on Board Game Geek? I mean, I think it deserves a higher score than it gets on Board Game Geek, which is like 5.4, which is terrible on Board Game Geek. Like, it's really, really bad. It's like it's like apples to apples, but with like topics. So like you'll have a card that's on the table and then you roll this dice and it'll say like topic six, which will be food. And then everyone has 11 cards in their hand or seven cards. I can't remember the amount of cards. But then you fan them all out and then you make a word that you think is most related to food. So if you had, I don't know, something that could smell tomato, like the longer the word is, you get the bonus point. But if it's more on topic, the person who is potentially picking the word, they pick the word. And then if they pick your word because it's the most related to the topic, they think, then they give you the, the points for it. So Okay, gotcha. It's kind of a hippie game. It's not really a hippie game, though, because you do have points you're earning. Um, it wasn't terrible. I thought it was entertaining. 
To clarify, we are not terrible friends. Um, <laughs> we didn't give this to Sarah and say this is a great game. Like we often, every time we see each other, we exchange games. Uh-huh. So we gave this to her and said, this is a game that is probably not very good. We haven't played it. Do you want it? And she said, yeah. yes. <laughs> so it wasn't like her birthday or something. <laughs> it wasn't terrible. Was it the best game I've played ever? No. Um, we also played Skull King again. We've played that several times. Um we played Welcome to the Dungeon again. We've played that several times. And then uh, we played this newer game that I purchased on our road trip uh, called Shamans. Oh, yeah. This is a very interesting trick-taking slash deduction game. So you have people who are shamans who are playing the white cards, and then you have two people playing the shadows who are playing the dark cards. And you're playing tricks to the middle of the table, but... When someone leads a trick in a certain color, like if someone led green, the shaman people really want to play the same suit. Because every time you play out of suit, there's this tracker, this shadow tracker. And every time someone plays out of suit, the shadow tracker goes up a space. And if the shadow tracker goes all the way to the end of the board, then the shadows win that round and the shaman are screwed and they don't get the points. Okay. Um, So it's just really interesting because sometimes... You know how, like, in every social deception game, like, sometimes someone will play out a turn. Like, if a green card was led, they'd play purple. And they're like, I'm not evil, guys. I just don't have purple. Like, you know me. Like, I'm a good person. <laughs> so are you required to play by actual trick-taking rules? Like, is everybody required to? Or they still is play just- by a trick-taking game. Like, they can play okay. out of suit. But anyone can play out of suit at any time. Um, and you do that for very specific reasons. Too complex to describe over a podcast. But... um for the most part, the evil people want to play out of suit so they can advance the shadow tracker so it goes farther up so they win. Um, so, yeah, and then there's these little assassin tokens. So, like, if you activate a certain, like, once all the cards in a certain color have been played, it activates the ability on that um, specific spot they're laying on. So some of them are assassin spots. Some, like, make the marker go backwards. Um but mostly people were just assassinating each other. So if you have an assassin token and you activate that color, then whoever you suspect of being a shadow person, you're like, I want to kill them. And then they die. And then they have to reveal themselves right away. And then they put all the rest of their cards back into the piles around the, the board. So it's a fun, it's a fun, interesting little deduction game. I've never played one quite like that. Similar to Avalon, but a little more complex. And then finally... Um, Jean-Luc brought over a piece of cake, and I love this game so much. Although, I think the theming's pretty poor, because it says piece of cake, but it's got pie on it. They're very clearly pie. That drives me crazy, especially considering piece of pie would be a great name. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun themed. There's whipped cream involved, so that's always fun. Yeah. <laughs> Dollops of whipped cream. <laughs> and it's an it's a pretty simple, like, I cut, you choose mechanic. Yep. So it's Very fun. fun it's one of Damon's favorite games, which is funny because it's so simple. I've played it only twice, so maybe it's not my favorite game. But you talk about it all the time. It's got cake in it. Yeah. You mean pie? <laughs> I mean cake. <laughs> and then their new version is um, pizza themed. What's the name of it, Damon? New York pizza. New York pizza. Possibly New York slice. New I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. It's a fun one. You can't actually buy a piece of cake anymore, but you can buy the pizza version. Okay, so um, today I was going to talk about the deck of playing cards. Uh, we all know 
what a deck of playing cards looks like, I assume. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure. I should hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's come a long way to evolve into the 52 card deck that we know today. I mean, it just seems so normal or traditional when you look at it in a store. Like there's bicycle decks, there's other, I mean, bicycle is like the main deck, I think, but there's other brands out there and you can, you can buy a four pack of these cards at, at the dollar store now for a buck, you know, that's, (laughs) that's how I. I bought the cards to play Canasta once because I didn't want to spend a lot of money and they sold them for a dollar for a four pack. Not the best cards, but um, so I'm going to talk about how they came to be the 52 deck we know today. So do you guys know anything about that? I don't know why the Jokers are in there. I don't know what they do. I'll explain that. (laughs) I mean, we've talked a little bit about card decks in the past. The only thing I know is that they used to be hand painted. Um, and also I know that, uh, they kind of evolved at the same time as tarot cards. So those two are kind of intertwined. We talked about that in a very, very early episode of this podcast. Um, but yeah, other than that, I really, I don't know anything. I have no idea. Cool. Well, let's go over it then. This will be fun. Um, so the exact origin of playing cards, it's like debated, no one actually knows among all these scholars like where they came from. There's mm-hmm. theories, but there's more speculation than actual proof when it comes to these things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only clear historical evidence that playing cards began to appear in Europe in the late 1300s to the early 1400s. Hmm. They seem to have come somewhere from the East. So somewhere in Asia, they don't know exactly where in Asia, just somewhere in that entire area. They came from that way. I don't huh. know. They can't pinpoint it. Um the first dated manuscript, which mentions playing cards, was dated in 1377. Um, it's from Switzerland, and it was written by this guy named Johannes. So he mentions the appearance of playing cards and several different card games that could be played with them. Oh, wow. So uh, this is where the Catholic Church comes in, and they have more documented records. Obviously, we've talked about the Catholic Church before and them ruining a bunch of stuff based <laughs> upon gambling, like they did yeah. with Konane in the Hawaiian Check-Ins episode. Always but, ruining um, things. They, they were said to have appearances of um, denouncing cards yeah. in their sermons yeah. back in the 1400s. And dice and examples of other gambling games. They, yeah. they made it clear that it was not okay to play these games at all. Um, so that's just the whole thing about them trying to keep it down. But there's all their suits. Um, the European decks of the 14th century were swords, mm-hmm. clubs, cups, and coins. And so mm-hmm. these were the four main suits that they first started out as. And those and are they, the suits that tarot cards still use. They, they are in tarot cards, and they're still in the Italian and Spanish versions of the deck of cards today. Oh, so if interesting. You go to, that's what, that's that. what the internet said. <laughs> that's cool. So, yeah, according to the internet, the Italian and Spanish playing cards today are sometimes referred to as the Latin suits because they still derive from that, and they still have those same suits from when these first appeared in the 1400s. Hmm. Um, so in the courts from the late 14th century, it, Italy typically included a mounted king um, a seated crowned queen and a knave. And the knave is the, the royal servant. It's also known as the jack, but they use this, they used to use this in cribbage, the knave or the mm-hmm. knobs is what it came from. But right. um, the Spanish cards developed differently. So the court cards were a king, a knight, and a knave. So they opted out of the queen. They just didn't like her. I don't know why, but they, they decided <laughs> oh, no. to put the knight in instead of the queen. Um, 
And they also didn't have the 10 in their deck, the Spanish mm. version. So I don't know why they took that out. It didn't really say. Um, but they only had a 40-card deck, the Spanish version, of mm. a deck of playing cards. Um, so like Cassandra said, the first European decks in Italy were hand-painted. They were considered beautiful luxury items, so they were mostly reserved for the upper class. You couldn't right. get these if you were, like, uh, you know, poor. So they be- as they became more popular they developed more widely available methods to like mass produce them so that they could make them more available to everyone. Right. But but in the 14th century, I don't think you were playing unless you were pretty wealthy. Yeah, so, definitely Which not. was unfortunate <laughs> for other people like me who wanted to play games probably at the time. And they're like, well, I can't afford that deck of cards. I'm just going to have to. I mean, maybe they weren't thinking about that so much as just surviving. <laughs> they're dying as they roll the dice. <laughs> So this like slowly spread up to Germany, and Germany um, came up with a new card manufacturing process, and they introduced their own suits to replace the Italian ones because they wanted to have their own market in the game. So these new suits reflected their interest in rural life. This sounds super boring to me, um, but they're <laughs> I don't know rural life deck of cards. Um, these these Germ- German decks included acorns, leaves, hearts, and bells. Those are still the decks that Germans use as far as I understand. Oh. The same suits? I think so. I mean, I'm not German, nor do I know any Germans. <laughs> but soon after that, the biggest wave of car the the car the deck of cards came from the French. So, in the 15th century, the French developed the icons for the four suits that we use today in our games, and they're the hearts, spades, diamonds, and clubs. Um, they called them the French names, which I can't pronounce and I don't want to try because I know I'll butcher it. So, um <laughs> But it is possible that the clubs derive from the acorns in the German deck and the spades derive from the leaves of the German deck. But the, the real genius of the French that came into these cards was that they divided the cards into four suits into the red and black that we know today. So before this, right. all the different suits had different colors and it was really hard to manufacture them because they had to paint them all in different colors. And so mm. when they switched to just two black and two red um, suits in the deck, it meant that playing cards could be produced with stencils and hundred times more quickly than using the traditional techniques of wood cutting and engraving. So right. with these improved processes, the manufacturing, um, they were just able to just completely dominate the market over Germany. Like Germany was basically like crying, like we can't make enough <laughs> cards. The French are making so many more cards than us. And like they were just dominating it. Um <laughs> So these French decks and their suits spread all over Europe, giving giving us the designs we know today. So it made it across to England at this point. So they journeyed across the channel, and this all began, began in Belgium. So mm. um, mass quantities of these cards began to be exported to England. And also many French soldiers may have helped introduce the playing cards when they traveled to England. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Due to really heavy taxes in France, most influential card makers of the time immigrated to Belgium just so they could make their cards in factories and workshops there because it was so much cheaper than making them in France. So <laughs> there's a lot of factories being built in Belgium at the time. Um, so when it came to England, when the English first received these cards, they were like really into them. They left their own stamp on the market and they opted to use the names of hearts, spades, diamonds, and clubs, not the French names, but the actual, they actually named them 
you know, the English version names. So mm-hmm. they started using those. And there was a man named Burton Thomas Delarue. He was able to reduce prices of playing cards due to increased output of productivity. So he made it even better than the French did. This mass production he accomplished, it was in the 1860s, and he gave him a position of dominance in the industry. And smaller manufacturers with their independent designs eventually were swallowed up by his, leading to more standardized designs. And so... Delarue's designs were modernized by Reynolds, this guy named Reynolds, um, and again by a guy named Charles Goodall, and this is in 1860. And it is this design that they came up with together that we still use in all of our cards today. So if you see a deck of cards that you pick up, a bicycle deck or any deck you find at the store, it's Delarue who designed this with Charles Goodall, and they worked together to to design this deck, and we still Mm. use all of the designs they put in that today. So... Have a lot to owe to, owe to him, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's a really interesting thing um, about the Ace of Spades. Do you guys know anything about why the Ace of Spades is more elaborately decorated than the rest of the cards in the deck? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> this is really interesting. I didn't know this before I did my research, but the English is where we owe the honor of the Ace of Spades. So the English government passed an act that cards could not leave any factory at all until they had proof that the required tax on the playing cards had been paid. They involved hand-stamping the Ace of Spades. They paid people to hand-stamp these Aces of Spades. It was because the Ace of Spades was the, the last card put on the deck that they stamped it, and they did this so they could prove that they paid the tax on it. In 1828, it was decided that from then on, the Ace of Spades had to be purchased from the commissioner's for stamp duties and it had <laughs> to be specially printed along with the manufacturer's name and an amount of duty paid oh, wow. as a result the ace of spades always has elaborate designs along with its manufacturer's name and um the practice of the ornate ace of spades was just such a common practice because of that that even to this day if you look at your de- your deck of 52 cards you'll see the the ace of spades is way more elaborate than the other aces in the deck and it's the most elaborate card in the deck because they still do this even though they don't have to pay the taxes on the ace of spades anymore. Wow, that's so. super interesting. I never would have expected that. Um and it's cool that they like keep that tradition even now even if it's not necessary. That's really yeah. interesting. Do you have a duck lying around? I just want to see if it it's true. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Let's grab one. Damon, do you want to grab some of the cards? Some of our card decks? Grab a couple of the traditional ones and then maybe grab the dog deck, too. We have a deck with dogs on it. Yeah, get the dog deck and the regular deck. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) Okay, we've got a bunch of cards here, so let's see what we got. Let's see. That's an ace, but it's not the ace of spades. Okay, ace of spades. Yes, it is fancy. Uh, It's got flowers all over it and a bee. Cool. Can I see it? Oh... And it says Consolidated Doherty, and it's got a patent on it, and it has the number 92. I don't know why. Uh, And it says Made in the USA. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Yep, it's actually way fancier than any of the other cards. All right, how about you? Same thing on here. It says Aviator. Ah, Aviator. Yep. And it has that special thing on the bottom. Yeah. It says the U.S. playing card... Company, Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay, so they say where they're from. Let's check the dog deck. 
this is the one that I am not certain that they would keep with the tradition. Ace of Spades! Okay. Oh, well, I was hoping it would be a special dog. It's not. It's a flat-coated retriever. Um, but it does have, like, a little number on the bottom that isn't on any of the other ones. It's not fancy, per se. It's ju It just looks like a normal... It's just a weird dog. But it does have numbers on the bottom, which I assume have something to do with the manufacturer or, like, the number of the card deck or something that's sweet that's cool that they still do that to this day because of the uh, tax in england back in like the 1800s yeah um, all right one more deck this one is it's got the colorado license plate on the back oh yeah and there it is ace of spades fancy ace of spades it's got the ace and then it's got like some decorations around the ace, and then there are two men wrestling on top of a world. I don't know why those are there. <laughs> um, so then we we take the card decks and we move across the pond to America. Um, we didn't have much to do with, like, anything about how the deck evolved, really. I mean, it was pretty much the deck it was when it came to us. Mm -hmm. um, but the leading name in the 52-card playing deck in the United States in the 1800s, his name was Lewis Cohen. He spent four years in England and began publishing cards in 1832. And in 1835, he invented a machine for printing all four colors of the card faces at once. Hmm. And his successful business eventually became a public company in 1871 under the new name, the New York Consolidated Card Company. Um, this card company was responsible for introducing and popularizing um, the English pack, is what they called it, to make it easier for players to hold, recognize poker hands, and to fan the cards out only slightly without having to fan them all out to see them um, more than they used to. Mm -hmm. So he's pretty much the one that came up with the idea to um, put the indices on the cards, so like the smaller numbers in the top right, so you didn't have to fan your cards out as much mm -hmm. to see them. Mm -hmm. And poker poker players like this a lot. So it's like such an obvious thing to have in cards. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing it didn't start that way. Well, he's kind of like Thomas Edison a little bit because he didn't invent this idea. Oh, a guy, okay. a, a different guy invented it. And, <laughs> but he, he took the idea and patented it so no one else could use it, which is kind of horrible of him. Gotcha. So his, he's, he was the only deck of cards that actually could do this, which is why his company was so popular. Um, and then the only final innovation that the United States contributed to the deck of cards at all was the addition of the Jokers, which Damon said were useless. <laughs> 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 um, the Joker was initially referred to as the best bower, which is the terminology that originates in the popular trick-taking game Euchre. Okay. I've never played Euchre, but I guess they put the Jokers in the deck for specifically for people to play Euchre. Oh, wow. And this came about in the mid-19th century. It, it essentially created the highest trump card in that game. So the Joker was considered the wild, and it was the highest ranking card. It must have been a really popular game then. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple games I've used the Joker for. It is unusual, and I've never played Euchre. I don't think I have. Maybe I have, and I forgot. <laughs> I know my mom liked it a lot, but I can't remember if we played it as a kid. Um, yeah, that's like the last the last update to the card deck since like 1875, oh, wow. and then we've had this deck since then. So, wow. and that's the story of the 52 deck of cards. That's it. Cool. Yeah, it's one of those things that's like 
you know how people say good design is invisible and you really you think about the way that a 52 card deck looks and you're like well there's no other way it could look right obviously there need to be numbers in the corners so that you don't need to like fan out your cards all the way obviously like you should be able to see if it's a jack queen or king without having to like turn them over so you can see their faces rather than their feet <laughs> like they're just some things that they, they seem so obvious now because somebody figured it out but like somebody had to figure these things out and that's that's what good design is it's really interesting i mean i know that cribbage came out in like the 1500s so it's gotta have been like a regular sort of regular deck by that point but also that della rue guy was the one who designed the rotationally symmetrical court cards because remember like i said in the cribbage episode they used to be a full body and then people would always reveal their kind of hand they would reveal if they had a a king or a queen or a jack because they had to rotate the card over to see what the face of the card was. So he's the one who came up with the idea like, no, these should be the same on both sides. That way people aren't revealing their poker hands when they're playing. So, I mean, that was a huge, it doesn't seem like a huge thing, but it was a huge thing because it's like, yeah, totally. <laughs> people were using that to cheat. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so yeah, if you listeners know anything else about this deck of 52 cards that we all play with today, let us know. You can find us on our website at playdnapodcast.com. And and if you live in a country where you use different suits, then that would be really interesting to hear too. So if you use any suits that we did not talk about in the podcast, definitely let us know. Oh, yeah. That'd be really interesting. All right. As always, play safe, play often, and we will see you next time. <laughs>